The epistle text for this Resurrection Sunday comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, and if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verses 12 through 26. If you're with us this morning in Abel, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. So if the message that is preached says that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. We are found to be false witnesses about God because we testified against God that he raised Christ when he didn't raise him if it's the case that the dead aren't raised. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. If Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And what's more, those who have died in Christ are gone forever. If we have a hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first crop of the harvest of those who have died. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. Each event will happen in the right order. Christ, the first crop of the harvest, then those who belong to Christ at his coming, and then the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he brings every form of rule, every authority and power to an end. It is necessary for him to rule until he puts all enemies under his feet. And death is the last enemy to be brought to an end. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We tried this earlier. Let's see if you still remember. He is risen. He is risen. risen. You will be risen. (laughs) Thank you. In the epistle text this Easter Sunday, the Apostle Paul isn't so much concerned with how the Corinthian Christians respond to the first statement that Christ is risen. They, too, like you this morning, know and understand the right response. He is risen indeed. But it's to this question. What does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? To Paul's statement, you too will be risen. What is, and I know that's the wrong verb tense, but you too will be raised. (laughs) What is the proper response for us? It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, if you're unfamiliar with the scripture, 1 Corinthians is one of my favorite letters of a guy named the Apostle Paul, who writes to a church in Corinth. And part of the reason I love this letter so much is because the Corinthians frustrate him. They're wonderful, typical Christians who struggle to get things right. 
They're divided, broken, and Paul is kind of frustrated with them most of the time. They can't even, in chapter 11, get communion right. But here, towards the end of the letter, he has this whole chapter on resurrection. And not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the hope of the resurrection of all things. It's one of the more detailed, actually, in some ways, it's a little too detailed, description of the way in which Paul believes that the resurrection of all things will happen with Christ being first. In fact, this whole section that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 finds its way into the two most important creeds in Christian history, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. If you're unfamiliar with them, the Apostles' Creed has a statement about what we believe about God the Father, and then when it gets to Christ the Son, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and it goes on to say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. All those things we thought about and celebrated this week. And then today, the third day, he rose from the dead. But then it ends, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, and then here's the final line, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And even in the Nicene Creed, which is a little longer and a little more detailed than the Apostles' Creed, when it too gets to confess about who Jesus is, it says this, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary was made human. He again was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And then it ends this way. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And here it is again. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead. And the life of the world to come. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead. And the life of the world to come. This morning, as I thought about, prayed about this morning, I I knew that most people who dress up and come to an Easter service will know the right answer to Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that there may be a few of you who struggle to believe that Christ came out of the grave, was resurrected, but my guess is for most of you, you're already convinced. But this morning, I believe Paul and I want you to deeply believe not only that Christ has been raised from the dead, but I also want you to understand this morning the implications of that resurrection for you and me and why that matters. I think back to a conversation I had with my my grandfather, my, my dad's dad, Harold, a number of years ago. My grandfather um, loved, didn't like, loved to play golf. For him, it was not a coincidence that God and golf start with the same two first letters. (laughs) Once when he was preaching, my grandfather was a minister and the congregation always knew how much he loved to play golf because they could never find him at the office. But but one Sunday morning, he's preaching a sermon. He's telling this great illustration about a pilot who's stuck in a storm and And the plane's rocking back and forth, and he's telling the story as only he could, and so dramatically. And then he said, and then the clouds began to part, and the pilot could see just ahead of him the fairway stretched out before him, right? He meant runway, but fairway stretched out before him, and everybody who knew how much he loved golf just started bursting out laughing. And right in the middle of the story, he goes, oh, forget it. And he just prayed. I have a similar affection for that game, and so... My grandfather, not long before he passed away, 
he invited me to join him and play in a, a kind of two-man golf tournament with him for two or three days. It was a, a delightful experience. He picked me up in Pasadena. We were driving down to San Diego to play in this tournament and having wonderful conversation along the way. Well, I'll never forget, he, he said to me, he said, son, and he, he called me that because he couldn't remember my name. <laughs> he goes, son, son, I, I've been thinking a lot about heaven these days. He said, you know, I hope this isn't heretical, he said, but, and it was. <laughs> I hope this isn't heretical. Because by, I sure hope there's golf in heaven. Because frankly, if, there, if there's no golf there, I'm not sure I want to go. And he said, you know, I, I've been thinking about heaven and kind of floating around on clouds and singing songs. And he said to me, you know, I'm not much of a singer. And, and that's an understatement. He is a terrible singer. One of the most delightful things was when he was up on the platform. In those days, the pastor had to stay on the platform the whole time. Whenever we get to singing, he'd just kind of, and he'd just bang on the hymnal. That was his form of worship, which was best for all of us. Um, he said, I've been thinking about floating on clouds and singing. He goes, it just doesn't sound like much fun to me. Now, in, in some ways, my grandfather was just kind of being funny and cute, and just sharing with me how much it, honestly, it meant to him that we were going to get to go play together. But the truth is, he was expressing something really honest and deep, too. Which is that he probably had been shaped and probably in some ways had shaped others. With a kind of understanding of our hopes, of not only in this life, but in the life to come, of hopes that are pretty disconnected from actually our bodies and physical reality. Part of the reason he loved to play golf was not just because he was good at it and he liked winning stuff, but, but he just loved being with friends and spending four hours talking and telling stories. And he loved, my grandfather loved the outdoors. He loved the outdoors. One of my favorite moments with him, we went to Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, British Columbia, and he walked in, he saw all that grass, and he goes, what a waste of this beautiful grass. <laughs> I just wanted it to be on a golf course somewhere. But there was just something in him that, that loved the physical realities of this world that God has created and has called good. I wish I had been a better theologian back then in that car. I would have let him have it. This morning, the Apostle Paul, I believe, writes these words to the Corinthian church out of a similar kind of concern that their spirituality has gotten a little disconnected. They, again, have no problem affirming that Christ has been raised from the dead. The question that has arisen is this. Is there the resurrection of the dead? Now, we're not completely sure why those in the Corinthian church began to doubt whether we, those who live in faith in Christ, will, be, will not be resurrected from the dead, but apparently they began to say, well, maybe Christ rose from the dead, but that's it. The rest of us won't be raised from the dead. Now, th there may be several reasons for that. One, actually in the New Testament, there's this group of people called the Sadducees who also did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The old joke is that is why they are sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
but they largely didn't believe in it for political reasons. They were very concerned, as we are today in our world, with people from various faiths or traditions that believe in life after death, but believe in that in such a way that it makes them really quite scary because they're not afraid of death. And so they can do outrageous things, often even kind of terrorizing things, because they're not afraid to die. And by the way, people who aren't afraid to die are actually a really terrifying kind of people to and so the Sadducees, many scholars think, tried to teach against the resurrection of the dead or the hope of life after death because they didn't want Jewish zealots going crazy and causing Rome to come down on them and to destroy, as they did, the temple and their life. And it may be that there is some of that in Corinth. It may be that it's just hard for them or for anybody to believe. Again, this morning, it's not easy, but for most of us who would come this morning, we've gotten somewhere in our faith to believe that Christ was raised from the dead. But to take the next leap to believe that all will be raised from the dead, it's an it's incredibly bold thing for Paul to affirm, Right? And then it may be that the Corinthians just think Paul's lost his mind. But for Paul, if, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. We'll come back to that. But probably, and most likely, is the fact that these Corinthian Christians were shaped by Greek culture, what's called Hellenism, which was very, and hang with me here, is very dualistic. Thinks of us humans as a body and a soul inside, but those are two separate things. And so it's not uncommon for Greek philosophers, for example, Socrates or Plato, to look forward to death because then their soul gets to leave their body and go to that non-material place of the soul or the forms, if you're Plato, and you get to leave. In fact, Plato thought the body was kind of in a bad marriage between the body and the soul. And thank goodness death is like a divorce and you finally get to get out of there. And it may very well be that the Corinthians had this kind of dualism brought into Christianity with them. But that dualism was beginning to make them do strange things. Their soul then could be okay with God, but then they could do whatever they wanted to with their body because their body doesn't matter. And Paul, again and again, to the Corinthians especially, will say, no, 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 no. Your body matters. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Or your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body matters. You can't have that kind of separatism. Are you with me? And so the challenge for the Corinthian Christians is that they're getting dualistic. And so for Paul, he has to affirm that this resurrection of the dead, Christ coming from the dead, and here's the beautiful language he uses, is the first fruits of an overall resurrection that will capture us and the whole creation into a new life. Now, I know that's pretty heady, so let me show you some pictures. I, just between you and me, don't tell anybody. If I got kicked out of the Nazarenes, and I decided I was done with Protestantism, I would probably become Greek Orthodox. I love Orthodoxy, and I kind of have a fascination with the Orthodox tradition, especially the tradition I love, I hate to admit this, I love icons. They are those paintings that oftentimes happen in orthodoxy. By the way, they're not all that different than our stained glass windows. Icons 
are meant not to be venerated themselves. Icons are meant to be windows through which we can begin to see, then, the mysteries that are hard to grasp only in words. And so pictures or paintings, images that are worth a thousand words, can then draw us into the depth and meaning of that. And so this morning, I, I want to show you two or three icons that are called anastasis or anastasis icons. Now, the, here's your one heady thing for this morning. The Greek word anastasis or anastasis, and here's the way to remember it. If you're a fan of Russian literature, Anastasia, that name means resurrected. And so anastasis or anastasia, those icons are about the resurrection. And so here's one. I love this icon. First of all, this is Christ resurrected from the dead. And here's what he's doing. These two people that he's pulling out of their caskets, that's Adam and Eve in the icon. He's bringing them out of the grave. And on the left side here are David and Solomon. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingly reign. And then next to him, next to them is John the Baptist pointing to Jesus, the lamb that was slain and the king of all kings. And then on this side are folks like Moses, but I love the one right in front is Abel with his shepherd's staff, really in some ways the first of the martyrs in the scripture. And so indeed, death has not had the last word in Jesus's life, but death has not had the last word in Abel's life either. Now you're not very excited about that, so let's show you a different one. <laughs> Go to the next one, Tiff. Now here's kind of the similar icon, same folks, but what I wanted you to see here is this one goes down a little bit. And what the resurrected Christ is standing on are the gates of hell. The gates of death itself, Christ has conquered and broken, is standing upon them. And this one's a little creepy between you and me, but down at the bottom, that is death itself that has been bound and captured and defeated. And all around it are the symbols of death, the keys, the the forms of torture and brokenness, all of that has been defeated as Christ resurrects Adam and Eve and all the children of Adam and Eve from the grave. Thanks be to God. Now, why does that matter? If you're new with us, I, I talk about this piece a lot. So if you're a regular, just take a two-minute nap. Here we go. For the Apostle Paul, imagine with me on the platform a kind of line. That's the beginning out there. Out there, that's the end. So what Paul is writing about is that he believes that out here at the end, and it's important that this is out here, out here at the end, the, the resurrection will happen. All will be raised, judgment will happen, and the new creation will begin. Paul recognizes it started good, but it got broken. But what's crazy for Paul is right in the middle of history, as we're moving towards that resurrection, right in the middle, Christ, the Word made flesh, comes in, proclaims this new creation kingdom, invites disciples to enter into it, be powered, empowered by the Spirit to live into that. But then he dies at the hands of the old creation. But this is important. It's why we're here. He resurrected from the dead. Now, this is the key thing. It's cool that he came back from the dead. I know that we're a culture that loves zombie stuff. But he's not a zombie. 
nor is he like some of the other people, if you're familiar with the scripture, that came back to life in the scripture. Elijah breathes life into the widow's son. Jesus brings Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus calls Lazarus from the dead. But here's the thing. They weren't resurrected. They came back from the dead. They died of something else later. Christ, as you have affirmed several times this morning, resurrected from the dead. Now, if you're with me, that's what this means. This stuff that's supposed to happen out here at the end has now, for Paul, come into the middle. The resurrection, the new creation, this new life has broken in. And so when we baptized folks today, it was so much fun. We kind of drowned them. We put to death that old life and so that they could participate with the death of Christ so that they could come out of the water participating with the resurrection of Christ and this new creation that has begun. Now here's why this matters. Because if we too are being raised and are being resurrected with Christ, then creation matters. This is my one commercial. I invite you to come back the next six or seven weeks. We'll be going through the book of Revelation during Easter season, which will be fun, I promise. Not scary, but fun. And I think what we're going to sever again and again is the way that this life that breaks into the old does not just capture us, but it captures all of creation and heals all of creation. And so this resurrection matters because it means that my grandfather was right. There's something really good about this stuff that God cares about and wants to redeem. It also matters because it means that we don't have to wait to die to be the people we're supposed to be. That Christ took on flesh and the new creation took on flesh and so now the new creation through the power of the Spirit can live in us. And therefore, we are not waiting for our soul to get out of here, but we can become around here, we call it holiness. We can become a reflection of Christ now in our bodies. In fact, we don't even have to wait till we're old and gray-haired to do that. Even when we're young, we can become all that Christ has wanted us to be in the body. It also means that there is no lost cause. And there's no person in this room whose life is so broken, messy, ugly, fractured, dead, that Christ can't breathe newness, transformation, holiness, life, beauty, goodness, back into it. It means that our lives together become a foretaste of this resurrection life. A number of years ago, when Noah was a teenager, we got to go to Israel together. We had a wonderful time. Um, I was leading at a Christian school at the time. We had an archaeological dig going, and so we went and it was a wonderful trip, except that we took scholars with us, which was a huge mistake. <laughs> because when you take scholars with you, really spiritual moments kind of get messed up. Because if you stray from what is kind of accurate, they correct you. <laughs> Nothing ruins good preaching like accuracy. 
you laughed a little too hard at that. <laughs> so, for example, we, we stood in line for a long time at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. We finally got to see the place kind of under the altar where, where they, we kind of assumed Jesus was born. It's actually a cave kind of down underneath. And, and we got under there, and we had waited so long to finally get in there. And, and one of the tour guides is explaining, telling us a little bit about the history of it. And, and one of the scholars interrupts and says, well, we don't know if this is the actual manger, right? It's not like Jesus, you know, it's not like Mary carved her initials in the wall. And that just kind of kept happening. Everywhere we'd go, it would be like, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's a rock there that has a plaque that says, this is where Jesus prayed, to which one of the scholars said, well, we don't know. I mean, there's a bunch of rocks in this place. And it's just kind of been like that the whole trip, right? So the day we went to Bethlehem, we came back into Old Jerusalem late at night, and we were going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the church that contains both Calvary, but also the empty tomb. And they said, you know, we're going there tomorrow, but we were there during kind of a holy season, so things were really crowded. And he said, it'll probably be crowded tomorrow, but if some of you want to go tonight, it's open for like another 45 minutes or an hour. Some of us may walk in. So Noah and I were like, yeah, we're in. And sure enough, we got there. It was beautiful. There were only about 10 people in the whole place. We had a run, we had the run of it. We Climbed up the stairs, touched. There's a little opening where you can touch the very top of Calvary. We went around. It's kind of around the corner. There is the little chapel built over the empty tomb. It just happened. Noah and I went in there, and it was just the two of us. Candles kind of all around. And we're just being quiet when Noah says to me, Dad, do you think this is really the empty tomb? (laughs) Which I think my response was, it's empty. (laughs) <laughs> like, that's good. That's good. And I will say, of all the kind of places you visit in the Holy Land, we have some fair certainty that this probably is the empty tomb, and certainly it is empty. But Noah kind of whispered to me, but that's not the point, is it, Dad? And the reality is, if you got on a plane today and flew to Jerusalem and visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it probably will be a very meaningful experience. But even if you sit in that little chapel beneath what we think may be the empty tomb, I doubt that that will bring faith in the reality of the living Christ into your life. For what brings faith of a risen Lord, as we sang earlier, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. See his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer in just the time I need him. He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. Here's the question. You ask me how I know he lives? I went to Jerusalem and sat in the empty tomb. (laughs) You ask me how I know he lives? He lives. And I would want to mess with the lyrics here a bit. Not just in my heart, but in our hearts together. And for Paul, this resurrection matters because then in our life together, the resurrection empowers us to be the body of Christ together. And then finally, it matters, as Paul says in the last verse, because death is an enemy. It's important for us to affirm this today. For us, death is not good. Evil is not good. Darkness is not just the way things are. 
In fact, the story is that it is perfectly right for us to grieve the fact that our loved ones, and at some point us, our bodies break down. And we are not what we want to be. And we see the sufferings and struggles of folks around the world today, and it is right for us not to say, well, God has a plan in that. It is right for us to say that is bad and wrong and evil and broken and deadly and wicked and worthy of God's judgment. And so for Paul, the separation of the soul and the body, he's afraid the Corinthians may indeed think that death is really good because I just get to go somewhere. Because for him, Christ has taken on death and defeated it. So we may hate it, but we no longer fear it. We may pray that it goes away, but we do so in the hope that it is already a defeated enemy. Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? When I was in college, my my favorite preacher was a guy named Tony Campolo, because he's such a good uh, storyteller. He used to preach a sermon in those days that I think will probably get preached 4,872 times today. A sermon called, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I love that line, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. But maybe my favorite Tony story this is a story from years ago. If you know Tony, he and his wife and family belonged to a predominantly African-American church. And a young man died in the congregation. His name was Clarence. Died tragically. Died in ways that were just heartbreaking to this community, and rightly so. The minister was preaching at the service, and then he did an odd thing. He walked right down, and the casket was open, and he started talking to Clarence. He said, Clarence, good night. We loved you, Clarence. You went away too early, Clarence. There was too much of life still to live, Clarence. And so it breaks our heart to say good night, Clarence. Tony says the minister just kept talking to him that way, grieving, lamenting, and saying goodnight, Clarence. And finally, in this dramatic moment, he said, so there's only one last thing to say, Clarence, and that is, and he grabbed the top of the casket and he slammed it down. He said, goodnight, Clarence! I could never pull that off. I can barely pull off these shoes, let alone that kind of thing. (laughs) Pretty cool shoes, though. (laughs) Good night, Clarence! Tony said, the whole place was dead silent. The minister turned around and said, we can say good night because someday the Spirit who whisper in Clarence's ear, wake up, Clarence. Wake up, Clarence. And the Christ who has gone to the places of the dead to bring all of creation from its brokenness and destructiveness will say to Clarence, raise up with me, Clarence, raise up. And God the Father will say, blow that trumpet. 
and shout, wake up, Clarence! Wake up, creation! Wake up, faithful! And right on cue, the choir started singing, in that great getting up morning fairly well. Oh, I get goosebumps thinking about it. What I want you to hear this morning is it is so important that Christ rose from the dead, but he was the first fruits of a whole new creation. And that means that you can be new right now in the body. And it means that death is no longer a threat. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord as we await the whole new creation to come. And so let's try it one more time. You ready, Tiffany? He is risen. Oh, he is risen. You will be risen. You are risen. Thanks be to God. God, help us today. It is hard to believe that one who died rose from the dead. But it is a gift of your grace and spirit to believe that we, your broken people, your fragmented creation, your divided world can be new. And so may we not just be able to confess today that Christ has risen. May we know in the depths of our being that darkness doesn't get the last word and sin doesn't get the last word and evil doesn't get the last word and death indeed is the last enemy defeated and will not get the last word. And so we, too, will be raised. We will be raised indeed. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. Joy.
if you've listened well this morning, um, the Corinthians kind of thought Paul had lost his mind. And if I preach well this morning, you should have thought I lost my mind too. For what Paul is proclaiming is not just a moral code that we learn from Jesus to work hard to try to control the broken parts of ourselves. And he's not just proclaiming, you know, I think God's going to make it all work out in the end, so that's fine. What Paul is proclaiming is that in Christ, sin and darkness and evil and death have been defeated. And so stop letting them have lordship over you. (laughs) That we too shall be raised with he who is the first fruits of this new creation. But we're not just waiting for that. We're invited to live into that today. And to believe that is crazy, isn't it? Yes. That's why this benediction is for us this morning. And now unto him who by that resurrection power that is at work within us that is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory, the resurrected one. To him be all glory and honor and praise. And to us, those he has redeemed and has called his children, his church, now on this day and for all generations. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.